now the word of the Lord. I'll be reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ." but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you may remember a few years ago, I think this was 2018, that our great state, that is, of course, if you live on this side of the river um, in Nebraska, unveiled a curious new tourism slogan. You see, in the years leading up to the debut of this new slogan, Nebraska consistently ranked 50th out of 50 states that people across the nation wanted to visit. Uh, Despite having the College World Series and the zoo and the many miles of cornfields to visit and explore, people across the nation didn't consider Nebraska to be a glamorous vacation destination. Go figure. And so in response, the Nebraskan Tourism Commission unveiled their new slogan, Nebraska, honestly, it's not for everyone. Now, while the slogan generated some buzz, and who knows, maybe it got people to reconsider visiting our state, um, it offered a, a straightforward, unvarnished assessment that didn't try to represent Nebraska as something we're not. Now, one could debate, of course, whether it was an effective marketing strategy, but one thing that it was surely not was dishonest. But when we turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, we come to find that the Apostle Paul has something of a PR problem himself, if we could put it that way. You see, in the six months since Paul and his companions, Salvanus and Timothy, planted the little church in Thessalonica and were forced to flee town in haste because of opposition that emerged against them, Well, we come to find that there were some people in the city of Thessalonica, people who weren't part of the church, non-Christians, who not only afflicted the church in Thessalonica in a variety of ways in Paul's absence, but they also slandered Paul in the process. Uh, They claimed that Paul and his companions were nothing more than charlatans 
who were motivated not for the well-being of the church nor for the glory of God, but they just wanted to make a quick buck and enhance their own personal glory. These fellow citizens of Thessalonica, whoever they were, attempted to undercut the gospel Paul preached in his absence by undercutting the gospel ministry of Paul and his companions. And so throughout these 12 verses of chapter 2, Paul gives his apology, that is his defense. To to make an apology isn't to say sorry, sorry, sorry a whole lot of times. It, It means to give a defense, and that's what Paul does here. He gives his defense And in that defense, we notice that he doesn't try to present himself as something he's not. Now, to be sure, his defense, as we'll see in our study in just a moment, is far more impassioned than Nebraska. Honestly, it's not for everyone. Uh, But his defense also reminds the church, who may have forgotten over the previous six months, that when he and his companions were with them, when they spent a month with the church in Thessalonica to plant them and to minister among them, well, you got some people who were transparent, consistent, honest, true, and above board. And yet, beyond offering only a defense of Paul's own gospel ministry, he also reveals to the church in Thessalonica, and by extension to us today as we read and study this text, what a true reputable, and trustworthy gospel ministry and gospel ministers look like. You see, one of the challenges we face in our own day, and in reality, this is a problem that the church has always faced, is the challenge of discerning which gospel ministries and gospel ministers we can trust. When there are so many purportedly Christian voices out there, who should we listen to? And how do we know if and when the gospel ministers we submit to are ministering faithfully, and the gospel ministries we're part of are also ministering faithfully? Well, it's with these questions and issues in mind that we land in the text before us, and we hear Paul offer a defense of his own ministry, and in the process also sketches for us what true gospel ministry and trustworthy gospel ministers look like, so that we, in our own day, would entrust ourselves to what's true and good and beneficial. So our big idea as we prepare to take our deep dive into this passage is this, Entrust yourself to true gospel ministry. Entrust yourself to true gospel ministry. As we study the text, just to give a roadmap of where we're going, we'll see um, three points developed. First, the content of gospel ministry. Second, the service of gospel ministers. And third, the conduct of gospel ministers. Three points as we work through this passage. Um, You can also see those three points if you're using one of the sermon worksheets as well. So let's get started first with the content of gospel ministry. You know, I recall that back when I was a a child, there was a national election one year. I don't remember which one it was, but I do remember that the main accusation that each side hurled at the other in this national election was that the other was a flip-flopper. Um, every campaign spot on TV or the radio charged that the other candidate flip-flopped or, or changed their respective position on this or that over the years, depending on what's politically expedient. Well, when Paul begins to mount his defense in verses 1 through 4, well, he reminds the church in Thessalonica, in essence, that he was no flip-flopper when he was among them and when it pertained to the content of what he preached, the content of his gospel ministry. Notice beginning in verse 2 that Paul reminds the church 
that whether he was in Philippi, which was another city in the Mediterranean world, or in Thessalonica, whether he faced affliction or he didn't, the content of his gospel ministry remained fixed on the gospel of God. That is the good news of salvation that Jesus accomplished for sinners together with its many implications. He tells us that he never wavered from proclaiming with boldness and clarity the same gospel message, whatever his circumstances. And in building his defense, this defense that he was no flip-flopper in what he preached, the first example he cites is from his time in Philippi. You see, according to the book of Acts, before Paul labored in Thessalonica, Paul ministered in this city named Philippi. That's an event that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 16, if you want to hear more about it. And we learn from that chapter in Acts that when Paul was in Philippi, his ministry from start to finish orbited around the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to Acts 16, when Paul arrived in Philippi, he declared the gospel to a woman named Lydia, and then with boldness, he cast out a demon from a slave girl in the name of Jesus Christ, and then he even proclaimed the gospel to a jailer and to his entire household. Throughout his entire time in Philippi, Paul proclaimed the same gospel, even when he and his companion Salvanus were beaten and thrown in prison for it. But as distressing as I would imagine it would be to be thrown in prison for something like that, that didn't pressure Paul to change the content of what he preached when he went to the next place. Because when he got to Thessalonica after his time in Philippi, we find that he's back at it again, proclaiming the very same gospel. And this is exactly what Paul reminds the church of in verse 2, where he declares, we had boldness in our God to declare to you in Thessalonica the gospel of God, even in the midst of much conflict. You see, when Acts 17 rolls around, the, the very next chapter following Paul's ministry in Philippi, we learn from that chapter that Paul continues to proclaim the gospel of our salvation with boldness. According to Acts 17, Paul, when he gets to Thessalonica, he reasons in the synagogue from the Scriptures, uh, both to Jews and to Gentiles, explaining how Christ Jesus makes sense of the Old Testament and how the entire Old Testament points to Him as the one who delivers us from our sins. Understand that, that it was a mark of Paul's gospel ministry, whether he was in Philippi or Thessalonica or Corinth or Ephesus or wherever else he went, never to waver in the content of what he preached. With Paul, you knew what you were going to get every single time and in every single place, which meant that the accusation, which we'll see is leveled against him in a few different ways, that, that he was a flip-flopper, well, that was an accusation ultimately with no merit whatsoever. And yet, in mounting Paul's defense for the purity of what he preached in every time and in every place, notice that in the next couple of verses, he takes his defense one step further by defending not just the purity of what he preached, but also the purity of his underlying motives too. Notice in verse 3 that Paul's defense now moves to the possible motivations that one might claim are driving his gospel appeal. You see, apparently some in Thessalonica, some of these unbelieving citizens, were accusing him of being motivated in his gospel ministry by, quote, error or impurity or by some attempt to deceive. Now, in Paul's own day, there were plenty of examples of people in the Mediterranean world who were actually driven by motivations like those. 
For example, people in, in Thessalonica, remember we mentioned last, last week that Thessalonica was an important city in the Mediterranean world. There was a really important road that ran through Thessalonica. Travelers going to the, e west, to the west and travelers going to the east probably would have crossed in through Thessalonica. And the people there would have been accustomed to occasional visits from wandering preachers and itinerant philosophers who went from town to town teaching error and deceiving people all for self-serving purposes. And you know, unfortunately, that's, that's always been the case in the history of the church. We might think of the wandering preacher and indulgent salesman in Martin Luther's own day in the 1500s, the Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel who wandered around deceiving people by claiming that if you paid a bit of money to the church through him, your beloved dead would shorten their stay in this contrived and unbiblical place called purgatory and go to heaven. Unfortunately, wandering people like that, wandering charlatans like that have always been around. But in response to the accusation in Paul's day that Paul is falsely motivated, what we see in one fell swoop, he both names the accusations that are leveled against them against him, and then in the very same breath, he sets them aside and dismisses them. And yet, if it's not for any of those reasons that Paul finds his motivations, what does motivate him? What does motivate him to this consistent gospel proclamation that's indicative of his ministry? Well, he tells us in verse 4, where he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, and here it is, not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, Paul recognizes the privileges that have been conferred upon him, not only as a child of God, but also as an apostle of God. As an apostle, Paul was commissioned by the resurrected Christ himself, entrusted to bring the gospel of God to places where it was yet unknown. And so, with the knowledge of who he is in Christ and the responsibilities given to him to preach Christ, he makes it his solitary aim not to please other people, but to please the God before whom he's accountable as an apostle and teacher. You see, for Paul, gospel ministry was driven by a consistent and overriding desire to please the God of the gospel. And in that, we find an important mark of all gospel ministry. You know, some of you may know the story of the, the well-known, one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known traitor in American history named Benedict Arnold. Um, as the story goes, Arnold's military career started out quite well. Um, he was even something of a military hero, uh, playing a key role in several important victories for the Continental Army, that's the good guys, um, at Ticonderoga and Lake Champlain. And yet, despite these victories, he never really felt as valued as he would have liked. Uh, he was also in deep financial debt. And so when opportunity arose to fix both issues, he thought, by moving over to the British ranks, well, he took advantage of that opportunity. Uh, now, among historians, there's a, there's a whole range of debate about Arnold's motives for doing what he did, but it seems at the end of the day that his own personal needs outweighed a commitment to the cause he once served. In short, for Arnold, it was ultimately about pleasing himself and satisfying his own personal needs. And so, with that in mind and with what Paul tells us before us, ask yourself the question, who am I trying to please? 
Who am I trying to please? You see, the starting point of gospel ministry is to have clarity on this very question. First, as ministers of the gospel, but also as individual Christians who bear witness to the gospel in your own personal contexts as well. Now, of course, all of us face temptation on occasion to be people pleasers and to play up certain aspects of the gospel and to play down other aspects of the gospel, not simply because we're trying to be winsome and contextual in our proclamation, but because we just want to be more palatable before other people and don't want to have to say the hard things. But while recognizing the temptation to present something less than the consistent gospel in our own ministries, we ultimately have to ask ourselves the question, who are we really trying to please at the end of the day and why? Because if we're not settled in that question, well then, we'll always be prone to waver in the content of the hope of the gospel in our communication. And so in drilling down on this very question, first, know who you are. Notice that in verse 4, Paul has no doubts about who he is. He tells us, frankly, he's an apostle of God, someone who's approved by God, and then given the weighty responsibilities of heralding the gospel of God. And it's because he knows who he is and the grace bestowed upon him as a child of God, the honor given to him as an apostle of God, that he makes it his aim to please the God who has given him so much. In the same way, pastors, your pastors, should never forget who they are, both as ministers of the gospel, those who are entrusted with weighty responsibilities themselves, and then also as adopted and justified sons of God. And you, likewise, in the pews, should never forget who you are either, how you're also in Christ, an adopted and justified child of God. Understand that it's only when we take stock of the incredible work of God worked in our lives that we can ever hope to make it our aim to please Him above everything else because He's already given us so much. And so, on the one hand, know who you are, but on the other hand, know that the gospel, the gospel of God that Paul gave his life to proclaim is a message that's always relevant. It's a message that endures the test of time, a message that transcends boundaries of cultures and nations, and because of its enduring validity and power is a message that should always be proclaimed in every context. Winsomely, yes, absolutely, but boldly, yes, too. Just like Paul's ministry, true gospel ministry is a ministry that proclaims the gospel consistently and boldly from the mouth, first of gospel ministers, but also of church members. And that consistent and clear proclamation is rightly motivated, also like Paul, by an understanding of who we are. And it's when our gospel ministry echoes that, imperfectly yes, but echoes it nevertheless, that we can also say with Paul that our ministries, for as many opportunities that the Lord gives us, are not in vain. So the first mark of gospel ministry is the gospel proclaimed. But as Paul continues to mount his defense into verses 5 through 8, well, we also learn that another mark of gospel ministry is a disposition of gospel service that each and every minister of the gospel is called to inculcate. And so this leads to our second point, second, the service of gospel ministers. So again, while true gospel ministry just can't be gospel ministry apart from the proclamation of the gospel, 
It's also true that gospel ministry rightly ordered and executed, according to Paul, assumes a posture of love and service towards those who are served by it. And this is Paul's next step in his larger defense, in his larger discourse concerning his own gospel ministry, specifically that it truly was his desire as he proclaimed the gospel to the church in Thessalonica some six months prior to self-sacrificially serve them too. And that's exactly what he did and exactly what he reminds the church of next. Notice that in making this point about how he served the church, though, his first move in verse 5 is to respond to another series of charges that were perhaps leveled against him by the unbelieving fellow citizens of Thessalonica. Remember, those who were seeking in his absence to undermine his gospel ministry. And so, just as he responded to a series of charges in verse 3, well, now he responds to another series of charges in verses 5 through 6, where he emphatically claims three things that were not true about his gospel ministry, and by extension, should never be true of any true gospel ministry today. So, what are those things? Well, first, he claims that when he and his companions, again, thinking of Salvanus and Timothy, when they were in Thessalonica, he tells us that they didn't come with words of flattery. Now, to be a flatterer is somebody who uses endearing words for selfish purposes while simultaneously shying away from ever saying something hard. Uh, this was something that uh, has never actually been virtuous in the, in the history of, of, of civilizations. Even Aristotle uh, once defined the flatterer as someone whose goal is to make people happy in order to profit in money and goods. He didn't look upon that in, in good light. It wasn't a virtuous thing then, and it's not considered a virtuous thing today to be a flatterer. Now, while it's true that Paul may have spoken in his own ministry endearing words about the church, we saw in chapter 1, um, last few weeks, how Paul gives thanks and mentions all the great things going on in the church in Thessalonica. He spoke many endearing words to them. That doesn't mean that he's a flatterer. And in fact, by the end of our passage, he reminds them that he went out of his way so as to not ask them for anything, lest he be perceived as a flatterer. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And so, Paul uh, mentions that, sets it aside, and then the second thing he says, he claims that he didn't come with a pretext for greed either. Now, in the same way that a flatterer is somebody who uses words to cover selfish purposes, this accusation, which Paul likewise denies, would be a claim that his whole gospel ministry was nothing other than a cover or a cloak. That word pretext in Greek means a, a cloak that you would put on to, to, to shield um, something from somebody else. Um, and, and Paul says that his gospel ministry wasn't this cover or cloak that thinly veiled his true motives financially. Um, in fact, Paul will, will later tell us uh, again that he went out of his way so as to not be perceived as somebody who came with a cloak or, or cover to profit financially, and we'll talk about that in a moment too. Understand that for Paul, the gospel was no marketing pitch to get something in return. Um, and then third, Paul refutes the apparent claim that he and his companions were really only in it for glory and fame. Now, in Paul's own day, again, there were paid speakers who walked around from town to town, people called rhetoricians, who were often just as interested in personal fame as they were in money. 
And unfortunately, the temptation to leverage things like the pulpit or gospel ministry for personal fame exists even today, too. But for Paul, again, that wasn't the case. Yes, Paul's ministry is perhaps the most famous gospel ministry in the history of the world, but was Paul seeking his own glory in anything that he did? Not at all. For Paul, it was Christ's glory above everything else that he was after. Now, the one thing that each of these three accusations have in common is that they each have at their core a desire to get something from someone else to use gospel ministry in order to be served rather than to serve. And while this functions as an important heart check on all gospel ministers today, it also raises a question that we would all do well to ask ourselves too. Greg Beale puts it like this. He writes, quote, what is the ultimate goal of our ministry or life of proclaiming the gospel? To the degree that one's purposes arise from selfish motives, whether in preaching, teaching, praying, Bible reading, church attendance, or any aspect of the Christian life, to that degree, one is a charlatan out for personal gain. In short, any time that we leverage the gospel or gospel ministry for selfish and sinful purposes, we need to run to the cross in repentance. But if these three denials function as marks of a self-serving ministry, well then in verses 7 through 8, Paul reminds the church how he actually worked and labored among them. And in doing so, he shares with us some important marks of a self-sacrificial gospel ministry. Notice first, when we get to verses 7 through 8, that Paul first describes his ministry among the church in verse 7 as a ministry of gentleness. Or some translations, I think we're using the NIV, it says something like, we were like young children among you, which points to their innocence among the church. And then he further claims that he and his companions were like a nursing mother among them. Now, Paul was never one to shy away from saying hard things when hard things had to be said. Just read Galatians as one example of that. But even when hard things had to be said, Paul always said them in a context of love. Like a nursing mother, he was neither distant nor callous towards his spiritual children. Rather, he was engaged and affectionate towards them as, as the people that he was personally committed to serving. And just as a mother willingly gives herself for his children, well, Paul tells us next in verse 8 that he willingly gave himself for the church. He writes, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You see, and as apostle of God, entrusted with the gospel of God, he recognizes that gospel ministry involves not just the content of what we proclaim, as important as that is, but also the in-the-trenches, present, and self-sacrificial service for those the Lord has called him to serve. And the same, friends, is true of gospel ministry and gospel ministers today as well. Now, some of you may know that in the lead-up to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, uh, there were a number of moral abuses, abuses which contributed uh, to the eventual break with the Roman Catholic Church. And one of these abuses was known as absenteeism, absenteeism. 
The issue was that some church leaders who were appointed as bishops in the church ended up taking a large sum of money that was designated for such leadership position and then designated the responsibilities of that position to people underneath them. Uh, they would then pay a small amount to their newly, of their newly amassed fortune to these ministry delegates while they would sit at home reaping all of the benefits but assuming none of the responsibilities, including actually showing up and being present for those they were technically appointed to serve over. But in sharp contrast to that later corruption in Jesus' church, we hear here that a true gospel ministry requires gospel ministers and elders and other church leaders to be present and personally invested in the lives of those they're called to serve. Now, that may not mean that every minister can be involved in everyone's life in the same way, but it does require that there never be a concrete wall set up between a minister and those they serve. It requires that the minister be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of those he's called to serve, and by extension, that those of you with gospel ministries in your own sphere, especially in the home, be willing to do the same as well. But this also goes the other way too. You see, on the other hand, while true gospel ministry, according to Paul, requires that ministers and church leaders and elders never be absent from those they serve, well, it also requires that we not keep our distance from those who have been called to serve us. Now, several weeks ago, we heard how at the end of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews exhorts in Hebrews 13, 17, quote, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your own souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And in the same way, for those who have been appointed to serve you, let them serve you. Understand that true gospel ministry requires not that a concrete wall be erected between shepherds and sheep, ministers and members, servants and those they serve, but that a relationship of mutual affection be established, cultivated, and preserved in Jesus' church. But not only do true gospel ministers seek to serve sacrificially and to serve in the trenches with those under their care in all of these ways and more, we find next in our final point that they're also called to conduct themselves among, they, among those they serve as fatherly examples of sorts. So this leads to the third point, third, the conduct of gospel ministers. You know, I can recall the first uh, presbytery meeting that I ever went to about 10 years ago in Central Florida. If you don't know what presbytery is, that's the group of elders in a region of churches, Presbyterian churches, that kind of help oversee each other. And I remember uh, my first meeting in this presbytery, one of the pastors got up to address everybody in the room, and he began by saying, brothers and fathers. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, that's really, really weird to address everybody in the room as fathers. You know, we're Presbyterians we're weird, we can own that, and that's all well and good. Um, but I thought it sounded a bit strange at the time. And yet, according to our text, there is a sense, according to Paul, where those in gospel ministry leadership are kind of like spiritual fathers. And so, how did Paul conduct himself like that, like a father towards those in Thessalonica? And what do we learn about gospel ministry ourselves in the process? Well, a few things. 
First, in verse 9, Paul reminds the church of something that he hinted at earlier in verse 6. If you're looking at your passage, in verse 6, Paul said something curious that, that maybe on a first reading we weren't entirely sure what he was getting at, where he said that we could have, back when we were with you in Thessalonica, we could have made demands of you as apostles of Christ, but he didn't say what those demands could have been. But now in verse 9, he unpacks what was behind that thought when he reminds them that when he and his companions were with the church in Thessalonica some six months earlier, that they labored day and night so as not to burden them. You see, Paul is reminding them that when he was among them some six months earlier, he labored bivocationally among them. That is, Paul says that he had another job from which his stream of income came while he also at the same time ministered among them in his spare time. You see, from elsewhere in the New Testament, we learn that Paul occasionally worked as an artisan. Um, specifically, he was a tent maker, which would have involved working a lot with leather, so he was also probably something of a leather worker too. And it was from that work that he occasionally received his stream of income including presumably when he was in Thessalonica, so as not to burden these new Christians in the faith. You see, he, Paul didn't, wanna, didn't want anyone to mistake what his motives were. He didn't want anyone in Thessalonica to mistake his motives that he was somehow in it for the money, much less these new Christians who were very new to the faith and were very familiar with those wandering charlatans who were only in it to make a quick buck. And so, on the side, from time to time, Paul worked with his hands for his income while simultaneously laboring among the church as a minister of the gospel. Now, it's important to note that this wasn't always Paul's approach, and, and neither did Paul even see that as the normative approach for gospel ministry. Uh, for one thing, Paul himself gladly received financial support from churches once they were well-established. And in 2 Corinthians, later in his gospel ministry, we find there that, that the church in Thessalonica actually does eventually support Paul financially. And Paul even claims in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, pretty emphatically, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. But as a spiritual father, he also knows wisely how to gauge where his spiritual children are at. And like a good and circumspect father, he would never burden them beyond what they can handle. Instead of burdening them in that way, something he could have demanded, but he didn't, he reminds them how he and his companions lived among them as a fatherly example of sorts. They lived among them in holiness, in righteousness, in blamelessness. In all of their conduct, they lived how each and every spiritual father is called to live among his spiritual children as mature, godly, and thoughtful spiritual examples to the flock that they have been called to oversee and shepherd. But notice that it wasn't just in how they lived among them that they conducted themselves as spiritual fathers. It was also in the words that they spoke, in how they spoke to their spiritual children. As Paul puts it in verses 11 through 12, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, this is where this metaphor of a father is especially prominent 
Because the father's job, we find in the Scriptures, is often framed as the one who instructs his children. Think about Proverbs, for example, and Father Solomon instructing his son throughout. And as a spiritual father, Paul likewise instructs his spiritual children in Thessalonica. Already in chapter 1, Paul has encouraged his spiritual children. Later in 1 Thessalonians, he's going to have some harder words to say to them. But through it all, he never stops spurring them on to follow Christ. He reminds them in this very text who they are. Uh, Then he calls them to walk in a manner fitting, worthy of God, worthy of the God who has already purchased them for himself through Christ. And then finally, he sets before them the hope of the gospel, namely the kingdom and glory, as if to tell them, kids, you need to take your eyes off of the afflictions that are afflicting you and to fix yourself on better things. Understand that while spiritual fathers may have to say hard things from time to time like Paul did. Spiritual fathers aren't passive fathers. They aren't distant fathers. They aren't unengaged fathers in the life of their children. And in that lies a lesson for the spiritual fatherhood of true gospel ministry. On the one hand, every spiritual father, starting with pastors and elders and then working all the way down into your own personal ministry, even with your family, is called to assume a fatherly disposition in that we live as examples and then we exhort the individuals entrusted to our care, even when it's hard. You know, John Calvin notes that what distinguishes this call from the call to minister and declare the gospel, which was essentially the call in the first part of our passage, is that this call requires that we exhort all the way down to the level of individuals. It means that just like a father doesn't just know his children generally, but knows each and every one of his children, so too as spiritual fathers, we are called, and as many opportunities as you have to be a spiritual father, are called to know the spiritual children entrusted to us and to invest ourselves willingly and thoughtfully and boldly in their lives. Friends, that's something you should be able to expect from your spiritual fathers in the church. But on the other hand, this also means that when we're entrusted to spiritual fathers, even if you're significantly older than those who are your spiritual fathers, even if your spiritual father has been accused of being a Creighton freshman when he was on campus a few years ago there, personal example, story I'll tell you later, that we look to their example insofar as it's biblical and that we give serious attention to their words, giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're thoughtful and that they care about you. In short, true gospel ministry requires that we conduct ourselves as spiritual fathers when that's who we are, and that we conduct ourselves as spiritual children when that's who we are. Both carry responsibilities, but in the end, both also follow a better spiritual father. And as we prepare to close, this is where I want to leave us. As you entrust yourself to true gospel ministry, as you hold your church and your ministers accountable to this grand vision that Paul paints for gospel ministry, know that every gospel minister and everyone who is served by gospel ministry ultimately entrusts themselves to the God of the gospel. 
Yes, trust those who, like Paul, have been entrusted as gospel ministers over you. And yes, lead according to the vision Paul paints for gospel ministries in as many opportunities as you have to do that. But also entrust yourself to the one we all follow, the one who Paul followed, the one who is the truth, the one who served us in a way that we could never replicate, and the one who leads and guides us infallibly in the present. Entrust yourself to the God of the gospel through faith in His Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do give You thanks for Your Word and for this grand vision of gospel ministry uh, that Your Apostle modeled for us and exemplified in his own life and ministry. Lord, I pray that as we consider gospel ministry and all of the things that we would do, that we would gauge the faithfulness or lack thereof of gospel ministry according to your word, according to this vision that Paul sets out for us, and that in doing so, you would help us to entrust ourselves to true gospel ministry, to this vision that you've painted for us, and also to the flesh and blood people that you call us to serve and who you call us to submit ourselves to. Lord, we ask that you would bless us, that you would, by your Spirit, empower us in all of these ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.